Hello and welcome to the Final Girls podcast where we explore the intersections of horror film and feminism. This is Anna, co-founder of the Final Girls and your podcast host. This episode we are taking a little detour from our current season dedicated to exploring the monsters feminine to talk about a haunting fairy tale-esque film that has just dropped online. A sort of granguignol groundhog day, Cocody Cocoda follows a couple on a camping trip after a tragedy befalls their young daughter. With the shadow of their shared trauma still hanging over them, the pair finds themselves in an endless loop of torment, humiliation, and tangled dreams at the hand of a troop of outlandishly distorted nursery rhyme antagonists. If that synopsis doesn't do it for you, I can confirm that it is creepy as hell. And a horror film doesn't quite fit into the genre, but is so interesting. And it stayed with me for a while after I first saw it last year. I'm joined by podcast regular and Bloody Woman commissioning editor Tara Judah in the first part of this episode to discuss our thoughts on the film. And then in the second part, I will be talking with the writer-director of Kokodi Kokoda, Johannes Neholm. We won't be spoiling the film in our discussion, but you might want to avoid listening to the interview with Johannes Neholm until after you've seen the film, which is now streaming on BFI Player and other places online. Tara, thank you so much for making the time to talk about Coco de Cocada. How are you doing? Pretty good. I loved this film, actually. So I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to talk about it. I saw it at IFFR, I guess, a year and a bit, <laughs> two, nearly mm-hmm. two years ago. Um, and uh, yeah, really big fan of one of the short films from this filmmaker, uh, Las Palmas, which some people will be familiar with, um, especially mm-hmm. resonant for me now as it's about a small toddler who um, is basically the incarnation of Brits Abroad. <laughs> Um, uh, sort of trashing the place in Las Palmas. So um, I was really curious to see what this feature-length horror offering would be like Mm. from Johannes Nihon. So you mentioned that you loved it already, but can you expand on your overall thoughts on the film? Yeah, so what I... I, I really like the structure of this film and other films like it. Um, it's, you know, a cyclical structure with a kind of Groundhog Day premise that something happens over and over again. So f- films like uh, Coherence, Triangle, Time Crimes for people who like those sorts of films, um, which I do. Those are all films I actually really love. Um, this is the same kind of thing where something happens over and over again. Um, and it sets up this really beautiful, it's really lovely um, how there's kind of like a metaphor of a music box um, that sets up how the structure of the film is going to play out. So it's a family, uh, a couple, Tobias and Elin and their daughter Maya. And Maya runs off uh, to a shop window and is mesmerized by this little music box that spins round and round. And it's the old fashioned kind where you would kind of um, wind it round. And there's these figures on the music box that go round. Um, and so she's lost in thought and the parents are absolutely terrified. Oh my God, you know what? Don't run away from us again. That kind of thing. When they find her looking at this music box, it's about to be her birthday. So we presume they go into the shop and buy it and it's wrapped up as a gift. 
uh, tellingly, there is a line in the film that says, um, well, we don't know it's a music box until tomorrow. And it's this idea about um, even if you know what something is, you don't know what it will be tomorrow. So this is all really clearly signposted for what later happens, which is that there's a, a terrible event at the start of the film, um, you know, involving shellfish, that uh, funny shellfish, which leaves Ilin uh, feeling really sick and the paramedics come. Um, and then the something quite shocking happens overnight and um, something happens to Maya. The, the couple then go into this period of, of, of grieving and we see them three years later going on a camping trip. And importantly, from the moment they set off on their camping trip, uh, they're filmed from behind. So previously where we saw their faces and very importantly, we saw Elin's face swollen. Uh, we saw these kind of, you know, um, pictures of their faces. They were painted like rabbits. So there's this, this idea of like the face being quite important. Um, maybe it's a magical, fantastical space. And now we don't see their faces at all. We just see them from behind. Um, and we observe them as they go on this camping trip that they don't really want to go on. Um, their relationships in Matters, things aren't really working and what happens is that they they argue on the way there they bicker about a lot of different things and the arguments such that Elin doesn't actually you know it's late at night and they haven't found the camping spot Elin just wants to get off the road and stay at a and b and Tobias is having none of it he insists that they they can just drive off and camp somewhere and his decisions uh, and his not listening to her and their lack of communication is what sets in motion presumably or or perhaps interpretively uh, this idea of of the day starting the next day that starts with the dawn it just just is this deja vu that just is something terrible is hap is going to happen and the figures from this music box which is uh, uh, an old uh, kind of uh, not old but aging man in a in a top hat and a white hat um and a big figure a big guy uh holding a, a dead animal and uh, a tall woman with these huge pigtails and the three of them uh with a dog uh end up stalking Tobias and Alin, uh, and with you know creepy and terrifying results every day, and and Tobias just lives this 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 event over and over again. It's all told from Tobias's perspective. We don't actually know that Alin is the is has agency, even in the sense of knowing that the day is resetting. I think I read it that Alin definitely does not uh, know that the day is resetting, so she's experiencing it directly anew every single time. And Tobias is very clearly uh, learning and remembers every previous experience. We're not really told how clearly. No, well, that's also what's interesting is that we don't kind of, he doesn't remember. It seems as though uh, the first time it resets, it seems as though he knows something strange, that deja vu feeling, right? Something yeah. strange is happening, but he's not sure exactly what took place. He just knows danger is about to strike. Yes. Um, and then we get the sense as each reset happens that he's gleaning more about the, and then he starts to recall the figures, mm -hmm. what the threat actually is, what's about to happen to them, why they need to try and change or break this cycle. Um, and, you know, there's lots of ways you can read this as a metaphor for grief you can uh, re read it as a what happens in relationships when people don't communicate um, you know there's a, a reading of the film as sort of direct action versus communication and Tobias is trying to act and she's trying to communicate there's also the kind of breakdown of masculinity um, I think this fits really well into a kind of concept of recent films and and some also other Swedish films about this idea as 
I guess not instead of toxic max masculinity, but masculinity in crisis as a kind of patheticism. And it brings to mind films like Force Majeure, um, where we have the male character just fails to act. He fails to do the right thing. Um, he acts, but he acts in his own self-interest. And certainly there are elements of the resetting where Tobias acts in his own self-interest and not in the in the better interest of them as a couple, as a unit, um, and the idea of family. And I think there's a lot of questions around what role does masculinity play in the family now there's also a really interesting um reading to be made of this film uh which um i can't take credit for coming up with but my my partner's sweet swedish and um so the couple in the film are swedish but mm -hmm. the the man who's at the head of the kind of three creeps that that enact this terror on them is danish um yes and the two figures that he's with um, could be viewed as as migrants. Um, and there's this threat of the migrants coming in. And obviously that also is um, contemporarily how a lot of migrants arriving in Sweden, um, they come through Denmark, obviously, due to the um, geographical locale. Um, so there, there's also a reading of this film as um, some sort of threat to the family unit or threat to the Swedish potential way of life of this idea of migrants coming in. It's interesting that those other two creeps um, in this scenario don't speak. Uh, they're, they're, they're voiceless. So we have the Swedish, we have the Danish, and we have no other language, no other linguistic communication. They just enact, and they're at the, the behest of the Danish man. It's also quite interesting to note that the Mog, which is the sort of the ringleader of this trio, is played by Peter Belly, who was a pretty big Danish pop star in his time. So yes. Um, in, in one of the interviews that I've done with the director, Johannes Neholm, he mentioned that he really wanted to look for kind of an old timey entertainer, someone who has that sort of, mm. you know, that, that presence of someone who will do the jazz hands, who will just dominate a situation, who will turn it into a circus performance almost kind of that I think it really comes clear you know even the the imagery of the way that these characters are designed Mog is you know in the white suit with the top hat he's so he's like the MC of this group and he you're right he's the only one that speaks and uh, I'm not sure if Peter Belly was big in Sweden yeah I think he's extremely famous um yeah yeah, I think definitely there is that sense of like he's a very identifiable um, face mm. and voice, like you say, um, and also that the the song the yeah. that that actually is, um, I believe, quite a, a well known like children's you know sort of rhyme um, mm -hmm. in that part of the world, so that there is that familiarity as well with this kind of like little cyclical ditty or you know, and it's also yeah. it's um, there's a sense in this film that it is kind of like what's the physical and terrifying manifestation of an earworm, right? Like what happens <laughs> when something just gets in your head and goes over and over and round and round? Yeah. It's like if you were to take a little ditty and an earworm, it this is like the most horrific manifestation of that, um, mm. and I like that idea too that it's kind of expanding on uh circus themes um there, there, there's 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 also sim uh you know a lot of symbolism of rabbits and cats um the man is also kind of potentially this white cat that that yes. they sort of follow into the woods um they're, they're going down the rabbit hole they're painted faces are painted as rabbits at the mm -hmm. start of the film there's all this animal imagery um there's beautiful shadow puppetry sequences really 
gorgeous. Uh, before we go into that, because I want to, I'm going to ask you about the shadow puppet scene in a minute, but sure. there's something that I wanted to pick up on that you mentioned before, and that really stood out to me both of the times that I've seen this film now, is that in these types of sort of time loop horrors or sci-fi films, there's usually a lot of time spent or at least the questioning of the explanation of why, why this is happening. What can we do to break it? How can we fix it? How can we take advantage of it even? And interestingly, Kokodi Kokoda doesn't do that. It sort of seems to embrace or at least just go with a sort of dream logic. And at one at a certain point in the film, you do kind of feel like you've now completely left reality and this is now not following any um, grounded rules. And instead you're sort of taken on this very bizarre, somewhat horrifying journey. So I wanted to ask you, you know, what did you, what do you think about this absence of rules that these films are usually subjected to, but that they are not present in Kokodi Kokoda? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's partially because this isn't a straight up genre film. I don't think it actually, mm-hmm. um, I, I sort of, Yes, it's a horror film in some sense, but I actually would be hesitant to kind of uh, give it that genre classification too heavy-handedly. Um, I think that it's a it's a dramatic film. I think that it's um, I think it's a it operates on symbolic and metaphorical levels. I think it's quite experimental in some ways. I think that the structure of it is such that the resetting is and the time loop in a way is not the most interesting thing about the film um and and curiously you're right like the way that it resets is not necessarily that often with those films the the protagonist will do something wrong so they have to learn from their experience but this actually it's almost like it kind of doesn't matter what he does um Mm -hmm. that that we get the sense that the scenario is going to play over because it's an infinite trap and and the way that it resets is just in drawing back this huge kind of the camera zooms out um, and we sort of see the the staging if you will or the kind of the artifice of the setup and it's often in a, a kind of cyclical sort of of setup so it looks like the music box and that's why I think that the music box is a great um premise because it sets in motion the idea that this is just a it's just a continual circle it does there's no start or end to this um it just is something that goes round and round in a loop um and and so in a way you it's quite liberating because I think as a viewer you can let go of wanting Tobias to resolve the loop Mm-hmm. Um, you don't need to worry about whether or not he's going to find a way out because it ultimately doesn't really matter. Um, and and even the resets don't happen exactly the same every time. So I don't think this is a spoiler to say that there is one time where we we reset and Elin wakes up and Tobias isn't there. So suddenly it's from mm-hmm. her perspective for the first time. Um, and that's really fascinating because that that almost never happens in these films where we're like, okay, but we've got a protagonist who we know is the person trying to get out of this reset. And it's like, well, this time we've woken up and he's not there and things are slightly different. So, you know, how does that affect the resetting? Um, and, and does that do anything to perspective? Does that make us understand the characters in a different way? I mean, I think what, what you're ultimately looking at here is the breakdown of a relationship, two people, their shared trauma and grief. Um, and the, the, this kind of idea that grief is inescapable um, and that the way in which you live grief with someone else uh, is potentially I- irreconcilable or maybe it is. I mean, I think that's a question the film asks rather than answers, but um, yeah, which, which, I, which I think really works to its benefit. One of, the, one of the kind of most beautiful and also enigmatic scenes of the film I found was the, uh, the 
interestingly placed for me, Shadow Puppet scene. Mm. And you started talking about it early and I was wondering, if, what did you think of that scene and especially its placement within the film? Yeah, so I, I, I loved that scene. I think that um, I think the shadow puppetry is absolutely beautiful. I think it's really beautifully inserted into this film. It's quite, it's quite jarring in the one sense in that it seems like we've got quite a smooth setup um, without it. But it is actually in that reset where Elin wakes up and things are different and she follows the cat. Some, I'm not going to say everything that happens narratively, but she follows the cat um, who, who leads her to a sort of theatre or a sort of cinema um, where she watches the shadow puppetry play out. And curiously, Elin has changed in, in this um this iteration of the loop reset she's she's puffed up again her face is like it was earlier on in the film she's older she's she you know she's aged she's weary in a way that she she wasn't when they set out camping so we know that things that changed we don't know the specifics and it doesn't matter this could be much further in the future it could be imagined it, I mean you know the the sort of like actual kind of linear uh, explanations for things in this film I think you need to let go of they're not really that important but what happens when she watches this scene play out is it's the scene of her her grief and her family's grief and so she watches um, rabbits as if they are her and, and Tobias and her daughter Maya and she watches a bird which could be a number of, of people or things. It could be the creeps. It could be a, a metaphor for God. It could be the phoenix that rises from the ashes. There's there's All of that is in there. Um, there's layers to this, I think, that she watches this play out, this scene in front of her. And it, in many ways, it's the processing of grief and trauma. It's the kind of coming to terms with replaying something in your mind it's the idea of loop replaying as a way of um, processing grief memory abstraction I mean I think it's important that memory doesn't play out uh, as a linear kind of live action narrative for her but it plays out as an abstract but painful but beautiful uh, puppetry performance and also it's the idea that cinema storytelling shadow and light um, holds so much for us culturally you know we think about what what is the allegory of Plato's cave? What is the uh, shared thing about um, storytelling and cinema going is that it harks back to campfires. It harks back to sitting around in a circle, sharing and telling stories over flickering images of light. Um, that's the allegory of the cave. That's the premise of projection and cinema. That's the projection um, that, that of early cinema, which is, you know, what shadow puppetry like this is. It re reminds us of Lottie Reiniger. Uh, you know, all of these kinds of things is that it has something to do with the art form. And I think, um, you know, without having, uh, I'd be really curious to hear, I look forward to hearing the interview you did with um, Johannes Neholm, that without kind of hearing his motivation, but sort of knowing that he's, you know, made these short films and and, um, and there is that element of live action and puppetry or kind of, you know, mm -hmm. using those things together in his craft previously, that I think um, there is an element of, of reflection on the art form here. And so I think that the, the craft of the film uh, is also saying something about the craft of cinema. Um, I was going to ask you something else, but that's such a wonderful note to end on. So thank you so much, Tara. Great, thank you. I mean, I love this film, so. <laughs>
Oh, good, 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 good. I'm glad we got to talk. I'm glad we get to talk about films that you love. Me too. Is there anything that you wanted to mention about the film that you feel like you may not have covered? Um, no, I think the only thing I would say is that um, there's a really lovely piece written about this film that will be up on Bloody mm-hmm. Women um, by Alice Taylor Matthews, uh, and it expands on the idea of um, communication, gendered communication, especially as it plays out in the film that I would recommend people read. Fantastic, Tara. Thank you so much. Thank you. And now we're going to move into my interview with the writer-director of Kokodi Kokoda, Johannes Neholm. Johannes, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for making the time. Oh, thank you very much. I love the film. I've seen it twice now on the big screen and at a festival last year and again in advance of this interview. And congratulations for um, not making me want to fall asleep or have a dream ever again. <laughs> well, uh, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to to ask you, because Kokodi Kokoda has been described in many ways. I've read it being described as a surrealist horror film, as a dark fairy tale. I wanted to ask you, kind of, what is your own relationship with horror cinema? I always liked uh, films when you, when you feel something in your stomach or feel something, uh, kind of a physical sensation of the film, mm-hmm. that it affects you in that way. And uh, uh, horror films, good horror films does that. Uh, or absurd comedy films can do that as well but I think uh, a lot of my favorite movies from when I was a kid were horror mm. films for just that reason uh, because it, it really it could really affect you in uh, in ways that that weren't kind of philosophical but really physical and what were some of those favorites if you if you wouldn't mind sharing them uh, I mean uh, I think it was eight when i saw psycho mm-hmm. uh, for example and uh, i mean it made such a big impact on me uh, we acted out with me and some friends we acted out uh, the best scenes of the film mm-hmm. over and over and over again just to kind of try to understand it and uh, try to get it out of our minds it was uh, it was so powerful mm-hmm. When developing or, um, you know, in the process of making Kokodi, did you draw from any influences either within film or horror specifically? Uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm often inspired by, uh, by my own experiences, I think, like in dreams that I had uh, in certain periods of my life. And uh, uh, people I met uh, more than actual films i mean uh, i mean people have have said that this reminds me of this or that film and so but Mm -hmm. i mean for me it that's not the the origin Mm -hmm. it's it's something that uh, that i've experienced for real so what is the origin of the film uh for me i mean it's it's dreams uh dreams and uh, real things that i've experienced um things that I've uh, gone through in my life. Mm-hmm. And 
you mentioned dreams and kind of dream logic, and it's certainly something that comes across in a film. How did you go about translating your own dreams or um, images or experiences into images on screen into a film that sort of follows a dream logic as opposed to a a real life grounded logic i think a lot of dreams uh, uh, has has this structure mm. this kind of repeating structure that you you feel that you uh, you travel uh, you, you travel and walk and walk and run and run and run or whatever you do but uh, you end up in the same place mm -hmm. like you're uh, trying to escape trying to go somewhere but uh, you're not getting anywhere uh, like um, it's like um, every place is the same or you go to a new place but there are similarities from the other ones uh, so you kind of get the feeling that that all places is one place and all people are one person or something like that mm -hmm. Those kind of sensations that I am that I'm interested in, that everything kind of um, everything fits together in a way. Uh, universe is very complex, but it's, it's in, in one way it's it's all the same. Those kind of notions you can get those kind of notions when you dream, or at least I do. You you mentioned briefly there's a structure of the loop of the time loop. Can you talk a little bit about? the choice or the way that the horror in those time loops and those scenes or chapters uh, evolved throughout the making of the film. Did you have very specific ideas of what you wanted from each loop, from each chapter, or did it evolve as you were making the film? Uh, both ways, actually. I mean, um, I had... Uh, uh, at the beginning, I had kind of one part of the film that was quite clear mm -hmm. uh, in the loops, but then uh, after we shot them, uh, I added some more. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually wrote them down uh, after waking up from a dream. Mm -hmm. I kind of, uh, I kind of saw everything that happened in the film in front of my eyes mm -hmm. uh, as it actually happened. I, I knew. I mean, it was like an. Uh, an awake dream, mm -hmm. whatever that's called, a lucid dream or, or whatever. Uh, I, I could see all these characters and everything uh, just acting out in front of me and I just wrote it down. Mm. Uh, like those repetitions uh, going over and over again with small differences. Uh, and then, I mean, more or less, that is what happens in the film. Uh, but then, I, I mean, it evolved a little bit also from that. Mm. And can you talk a little bit about your choice of ending each one of these loops or chapters with an aerial shot and kind of a, a moment of stillness? Yeah, uh, I, th I think we, we call those shots the God's view. Mm -hmm. It's like uh, uh, a shot from above, like mm -hmm. uh, someone sees you uh, from uh, from uh, from another. Um, how do you say from a uh, from another reality mm -hmm. or from, a, from another perspective uh, it's like uh, you are so small and it's like you're trapped in your your destiny you can't do anything about it mm -hmm. it's that kind of uh, cold view on things like uh, you're just a little ant mm -hmm. trying to run around there but it doesn't affect anything you're trapped in that situation it's like almost uh, the surrounding woods there is like uh, 
you can really see that you are trapped mm. in this opening in the woods. It's like a, it's like a little bit like an old Greek amph- uh, amphitheater or a gladiator uh, play or whatever that you're 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 trapped in this opening. You're not getting anywhere, and someone is is just uh, looking at you from above. It's like uh, you're you're not getting anywhere, and you're uh, you're part of this play whether you want it or not. And it's interesting you mentioned the woods. Um, Could you talk a little bit about choosing to set the majority of the film in this forest? Yeah, um, I want to, uh, uh, what do you say, um, see see the the primal Mm -hmm. parts of the human, uh, humankind, or the... uh, the primal uh, feelings. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to dwell a little bit into that, um, and uh, uh, I mean, there's um, there's some kind of gradual uh, development in the film where you are you're using less and less language, being less and less social, mm-hmm. uh, going further and further away from each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and being, I guess, more and more primal during the way. There's the primal instincts take over during time, and uh, and I want to have this kind of timeless feeling that you are uh, you are trapped on planet Earth, and uh, it's not it's not something that um, that has to do with our spe- specific time mm. here and now, with our modern things that we are surrounded with. It's uh, I want to have this primal uh, feeling that you're, uh, uh, this could happen anytime, anywhere, uh, thousand years ago, and it happens now. Whatever we we humans, we are, we are the same. We are we're animals, and we're, uh, in a ways, trying to hide from that fact. Mm. And that brings me on to my next question, actually, which was about the animals in the film. Uh, the dog and also the cat and I wanted to to ask you kind of about about why you wanted to they feel like um, characters in themselves or sort of guides in these um, in this dreamscape scenario or this nightmare scenario so what role did you want the animals to play? I think it's much more powerful to have a a cat as a guide Mm. than, uh, than, than a person with a uh, with an idea, or with the, um, uh, I mean, if if, the, if it was a person, you could feel that this person has an agenda. Mm-hmm. The cat doesn't ha- have an agenda at all. It's like uh, it's more like faith or something that has to be done or something else. It's uh, it's a mystery related to it that you really can't really explain. Mm. Uh, it's just like this is the way it has to be, and you can't argue with mm. it, and you you can't even direct a cat to be a guide mm. either. So it's to have a cat, an undirectable cat mm-hmm. doing uh, pretty specific things uh, makes it much more uh, powerful and mysterious. Was it always a cat? Yeah, yeah, it was. I wanted to pick up on something that you mentioned before, kind of about the lead characters, Tobias and Ellen, sort of descending into a more and more primal state. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about your choice of making Tobias aware of what was happening and remembering each previous death, each previous um, iteration of violence and Ellen more, and Ellen unable to remember it. 
Yeah, I mean, I wanted the gap between them uh, to to widen during mm-hmm. um, uh, during the film, uh, so the the friction kind of got worse and worse and worse until it's, it it explodes in a way. Uh, and uh, I mean, as he wants to tell uh, or warn Alien mm-hmm. about. Um, about the threat, he he gets more and more sure that this is what's what hap- what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. We are uh, uh, we are being chased by these uh, these criminals. Mm-hmm. They want to kill us, and he, uh, for every iteration, he gets more and more sure that this is actually what will happen. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and she gets more and more sure that he's going crazy because it's so uh, um, so surreal. It's so. Uh, uh, such as the, the story is so strange. So I mean, her only uh, interpretation is that that he's uh, he's going crazy. So this gap gradually evolves during the film. Uh, this this gap, uh, which has to do with, um, I mean, it's it's a fact in all relationships that you don't always connect. You don't understand each other, or you are. Uh, at different different places, uh, you don't reach out to each other. You don't uh, understand each other. Misinterpretation, and so and this is what's gradually building. The film deals a lot with with that gap in between their relationship, but also with with loss, with grief, or trauma, and and how they're dealing with it. You know, you can project a lot of a lot of things onto the film. But do you think that dark fantasy or horror? As a, as a film genre has particularly apt to deal or to process visually and creatively difficult uh, human subjects like that? I think you can use an, any genre to, to tell any stories in a way. But, um, I mean, this kind of grief, uh, losing someone that you really love, it's kind of the most horrifying thing that you can uh, think of uh, so I, I guess it's in one way it's natural to to go into those themes with horror films I guess but it doesn't, it doesn't need to be that uh, in my next film it will be a, a kind of a very burlesque slapstick movie uh, but it will also be about uh, loss in a similar way uh-huh. and it's interesting you mentioned slapstick because I wanted to talk a little bit about the humor of the film, which is which is a, a quite slapstick and kind of very carnivalesque. And was there something kind of particularly interesting for you about bringing in that kind of uh, old school carnival entertainment approach into this very dark setting? Uh, I mean, in, in one way, it's... it's uh... Uh, I, mean, I, I grew up with that kind of uh, humor with Sh- uh, Charlie Chaplin and uh, Laurel and Hardy. Har- uh, is that what they call it in English? Laurel and Hardy, Hardy, yeah. yeah. Uh, 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 I love kind of physical humor. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the same way as I, I like, I like when films or uh, uh, or any kind of entertainment really gets to you physically, and uh, slapstick does that. It's so primal. Uh, it's such a, a raw, uh, a raw art form, mm. which I really enjoy. Uh, 
you don't need to understand it. You don't need to uh, understand the idea behind it, but you can still uh, appreciate uh, a cake in your face or whatever. <laughs> you don't know why it's funny. It's just funny. It's physical. It's interesting you mentioned kind of physicality because one thing that I, that I found very interesting just visually is the the physicality of this um of Mog and his fellows or his yeah. friends. So kind of yeah. how did you build them visually? Did you have specific images of in when you were thinking about the film developing it of how they were supposed to look and move? I mean, I, I want them to be irrational. Mm. You would never, you could never, you should never understand them. I think it's important. You, you, it's, it's important that you don't understand them. You don't understand why they do what they do. You don't understand why they look like they look. Mm-hmm. And they, they're kind of an, an irrational trio that doesn't belong together at all. They are very separate from each other. And uh, so, I think the irrational element was really important uh, to make them both. Uh, very physical and non-physical at the same time. They mm-hmm. should be kind of a paradox. Uh, I think that's, that's the idea. But it's also it was as I saw them. I saw them like this mm-hmm. uh, in my in my dreams. This is what mm-hmm. they. This is what more or less what they looked like and wow. more or less how they behaved. Uh, and I, I really en- enjoy that uh, that mysterious tone with them that you, you can't really understand who who the hell are they, where do they come from. Mm-hmm. Uh, what motives do they have they don't have any motive it's mm. just they just do it to kind of start um wrapping up a conversation a little bit i wanted to ask you there's there's plenty of violence there's plenty kind of of, of scary imagery and kind of um almost inverted imagery things that are you know not necessarily scary in themselves but they're made scary by the combination of you know the mood the atmosphere the performances the looping and I was wondering if there's if there's any particular scene or images that you found either yourself or through people's reactions to the film that particularly touched a nerve? Uh, I mean, it's hard to say. Uh, usually what people talk about is things that stand out from the rest. Mm-hmm. If they, uh, For example, in this case, what stands out most is the shadow play. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, I mean, you get used to one type of storytelling and then it, it twists into something completely different yeah. in the middle. And that's kind of a, a film within the film. Mm-hmm. That's uh, People usually comment that uh, a lot because uh, it's so different in, in every aspect from the rest. Uh, it has this um, very picturesque uh, tone and this very beautiful music as opposed to the, the much roar uh, mood of the rest of the film mm. it's, it's very raw but then you have this very delicate fragile uh, shadow play uh, in the middle which is uh, very uh, i mean compassionate and very uh, it's supposed it's supposed to be some kind of extreme beauty like um, some something that you can uh, uh, like a uh, like a pillow that you can cuddle when you're afraid or mm-hmm. something that com- can comfort you uh, in your worst nightmares. Then you have this uh, shadow play that can comfort you and help you. It's, uh, and I think people appreciate that, uh, that contrast. I was going to ask you about the shadow play, but you've just answered my question before I even asked it in the best possible way. Um, but 
thank you so much. And I just as a as a final really question for anyone who who may have seen the film and still has questions or feelings about it, kind of what would you what would you hope that people take away from it? Uh, I think it's important to to give some kind of hope. Uh, it's a very dark story, mm. uh, but to me, it's important that you come out of this uh, with high hopes that you could see something beautiful, uh, even in the most uh, bizarre and dark experiences in life. There could come something really, really beautiful out of it mm. uh, when you least expect it. Uh, so maybe, maybe that's it. That's wonderful. Johannes, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you.